Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast. Hello, I'm Janie Bully. On today's podcast, we're talking about The Who's guitarist, writer and conceptual centre, Pete Townsend. With me to talk about how Pete helped create the template for modern rock and roll via three key moments, The Who's sellout, Quadrophenia and The Who's 1974 live show, our Who biographer Mark Blake and Mojo's ace face, the author Pat Gilbert. Hello. Hello. Released at the end of 1967, The Who's sellout was an ironic take on the world of Britain's pirate radio stations, who interspersed the hits of the day with jingles, product endorsements and zany DJ speak. So what's Pete up to here, Mark? Uh, He's sort of making it up as he, he went along, because I think the idea was that The Who needed to do something that was closer to a concept album. They'd seen what had happened with The Beatles, and even The Rolling Stones had got in on the act as well, after Sgt Pepper and uh, The Satanic Majesties. And he was under a lot of pressure to come up with something similarly grand, mainly from his manager, his co-manager, Kit Lambert, who was always encouraging him to think bigger. And what they ended up with was The Who Sell Out, which was a little bit of a compromise, because it falls between being a full-on concept album and just a collection of songs. So it, it works on two levels. It didn't, they sort of ran out of steam a bit halfway through. Yeah, by the end of Side 2. The by the end of Side 2, they sort of abandoned that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a tribute to the pirate radio stations, like you say, which had just mm. been outlawed by, by Tony Benn, in fact, at the time. And this was our tri- their tribute to the pirate radio. But, of course, it, it, it brought in all these other influences that were playing into what Townsend was doing at the time. So with that regard, was it kind of pro the consumerism in the, the ads? Very the much. It was very pro the style of the pirate radio. They mm. loved pirate radio because I think it was seen as so different from what you had on the BBC. We didn't yeah. have ads. I mean, the ads were almost a part of it, for, for a part of the appeal. It was the fast-talking American DJs or British DJs that were impersonating fast-talking American DJs. Jingles, all the jingles, that kind of thing. That's what they liked. And yeah. that, it was all tied up with them hearing pop music, Doctor in Townsend hearing the early pop music was was tied up with things like Radio yeah. Luxembourg. So that's funny because it feels so British with hindsight, doesn't mm. it? But, but say, it was British like impersonating yeah. things they sort of heard in America, mm. really. That's where it came from. And punk's Pat Gilbert. It's quite a, a punk thing too, isn't it, to talk about consumerism like yes, this? Yes, I suppose it, it, yeah. it's a very punk thing to do. But there's other angles too because uh, the sleeve is very pop art and the whole thing about yeah. radio jingles and stuff is about selling stuff and materialism. But... Yeah. Pete's art school background was very much about thinking of something beyond that because in the 1950s, the art schools were there to um, train people to, you know, to make cornflakes packets and and Hornby (laughs) train set box covers and things like that. But by the time Pete Townsend gets to Ealing Art School, that's being subverted. There was a guy who came uh, to lecture at his college called Larry Rivers, yeah. who was an American uh, jazzer and uh, artiste. And he gave a lecture where he said, art is crap. You know, all this stuff, all this painting, all this making boxes for things or whatever, that's rubbish. Art should be something else. It should be the art of ideas. So it's kind of going into that surrealist notion. Mm. So really, the Who So Out is kind of taking the piss a bit because Pete was, was very much against this idea of selling everything, which hence the Who sell out. And, of course, they do this because they need money. Because the original concept was, um, in the finished album, they have um, these made-up radio jingles. Mm. But the original concept, would they'd have real adverts. 
So they'd raise right. you know fifty thousand pounds or something by actually having an advert for you know Coca Cola or, or God, that's or, very or prescient, isn't it? Cars <laughs> or what have you, which um, is a fantastic idea, and I don't think it's ever done again. I think Zig Zig Sputnik tried to do a sort of similar <laughs> right. thing in the nineteen eighties, but with the with the Who, they couldn't. Um, they had projected sales of the albums of about fifty thousand copies. And it wasn't enough for people to become interested in actually advertising on the album. So it's kind of, as Mark said, it's kind of made up as it goes along. It's a kind of imperfect um, end to uh, a lot of different ideas. Yeah, and they've done, they done real ads in real life as well yes. as, a, as, yeah. a, as a way of making money. I mean, they'd done a jingle for Coca-Cola. They'd also done an advert for the US Air Force, which they got a lot of stick for because obviously it's in the middle of the Vietnam oh, yeah. War. So I think that ties in with what Pat was saying about they needed money. They did those things because they got given a bag of cash. Right. And that funded the big yeah. ideas that, you know, the moment they couldn't get them off the ground because, of mm. course, they were skinned all the time. Although they were successful, yeah. they weren't making enough money. And Pete's, um, what Pat was saying about his experience at art school, I mean, that bears a closer look at, doesn't it? I mean, it's really quite radical, yeah, the ideas that he's picking up from extraordinary that. course that he was on a ground mm. course for two years, by, introduced by a guy called Roy Ascot at Ealing Art School. And it was mm. just throwing out everything that you thought you knew about art, as like Pat was saying, yeah. when Larry Rivers was a visiting lecturer there. There was a lot of this kind of these kind of ideas. Anthony Benjamin came in, R.B. Kittage, who later designed face dances, that, well, did once some of the design right. for the face dances, who sleeve. These guys were visiting lecturers, and it was the complete opposite of sitting down and drawing something, mm. you know, doing a still life. It was cybernetics, it was semiotics, it was thinking about art in a completely different way, which... Again, it all dovetails into what the Who were doing later on. I mean, you'd go to a, a life drawing class and be told that there was a model, you had two mm. hours to draw the leg, ten seconds to draw the face or the ankle, and that's, that's these strange disciplines yeah. that they were applied. Imagine the world from the view of a, a from the perspective of a sponge. That was another <laughs> one that I heard about from some of the students there. Wow. And it wasn't unusual to come in and find that, you know, they... they glued the furniture to the walls as a sort of artistic <laughs> statement there was a, a caretaker at Ealing Art School who apparently was just you know, tearing his hair out on a weekly basis by the sort of the chaos that was being created but this is a complete opposite of sitting down and drawing a vase of flowers yeah so it, again these it, it was encouraging you to think outside what, in the way that you normally would there's some great photos in the current issue of Mojo, in fact, with the piece that you yes, wrote about that they, kind of disruption. The disruption, exercises. they were told to go out into Ealing, students were sent out in groups and disrupt, make something happen. I think there's, and we have a photograph which we acquired of Pete and some of his friends standing outside a telephone box. There's a guy inside it upside down. We <laughs> don't really, right. I'm making a phone call, we don't really know what he's doing, we're trying to find, trying <laughs> to find out more about it. But one of the people I spoke to who was a contemporary of his was said that he went out and the idea was we're going to steal an apple from a greengrocer's and then write about the reaction and what happened afterwards, which is presumably oh. uh, an irate greengrocer chasing down the road. And that was considered yeah. artistic. One of the things they did was they made a fake bomb and left it on the, on the right, underground, the tube station. which resulted in Mansion House tube station being closed. This is all the same time as Pete's Blimey. looking at the phone box yeah. with a man in it upside down. And uh, they got suspended. But Roy Ascot, yeah. the head of the ground course, was apparently delighted mm. by this secretly. So again, it's this idea of forget everything you know about art. This is this is a new thing. Yeah. So Pat Pete's applying all this sort of mm. art school 
thinking to this record? And how does that fit with the prevalence of psychedelia of 1967? Well, the the Who were a bit like the Stones in that they didn't do psychedelia particularly well. You know, British psychedelia compared with uh, American psychedelia is a very confused and kind of (laughs) difficult thing. So they they spent a lot of 1967 on the road. So the year that the Who sell out, was made. I mean, it was made kind of, it was made in London, but it was also made in New York and LA because they were touring Mm. America. I don't think they were sitting still enough like the Beatles were, and to a certain extent, the Stones. Both those bands were off the road during 1967 and got very psychedelic and took loads of mind expanding drugs. (laughs) And the Who didn't. They were a working, um, they were working band. And again, one of the ironies of the Who sell out is we talk about um, Pete Townsend uh, as a conceptual thinker mm. and uh, an art school kind of brain box. But really, I think he comes from a tradition of hardworking musicians, uh, which, yeah, is, which is where they got into conflict. With, yeah, yeah, because his, his father uh, and his mother were working jazz musicians. Right. They didn't earn a huge amount of money. But they lived an itinerant lifestyle, playing, you know, um, dance halls and mm. American air force bases all around the country. Yeah. And I think Pete is actually into this work ethic. The Who needed to um, work and, and play gigs in order to earn money. This is what happens during their ma- while they're making Tommy. They have to keep, keep sort of nipping off to play gigs all the time, yeah. you know, because <laughs> they're skin. They're totally, they haven't got any money. So, yes, this is very much to do with um, Pete's art school thinking, but there was, mm. there's something else going on there. He yeah. wasn't a lazy art school type. You know, like. But I think Daltrey was very driven like that as well because, of course, he'd, been mm. a, he'd had a proper job. He'd been a steel, yeah, a steel worker yeah. and an electrician, and he was used to getting up in the morning and clocking on, and I think he brought that ethic to the yeah. band as well around this time. So it was this, you've got to keep working to make money. I mean, that's doing almost, what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's almost the heart of the who, isn't it, that duality between, yes. you know, the thinking and the, the yeah. daily grind, the getting up and, you know, thumping panels of metal. Mm. So how would all this conceptual art stuff have played with the kind of fans in the mod clubs? And I don't know, because sort of mod mm. was kind of, you know, going then. I mean, as, start, as soon as people started taking LSD, um, mm. things got very bendy <laughs> in, uh, in, in uh, 66, you know, 67. So you still had traditional mods who were listening to sort of Tamla Motown and, and kind mm. of rock, rock records. But it's the start of hippiedom. I mean, it's, there's a sort of divergent culture, yeah. really. And I've always thought the Who were very much more the working man's kind of macho rock band rather than the, the hippie trippy mm. end of things. And that's partly because Townsend took acid a few times, but on the way back from the Montreal Festival in uh, the summer of 1967... He had um, a tab of STP, which was a very, very strong hallucinogenic, and it absolutely blew his mind. And he had a terrible flight. He had this worst trip where <laughs> he, he had on a, a plane. A, a, yeah, yeah, he took it on a plane because <laughs> Keith Moon had taken one, and he thought, "I can't let old Mooney do it." On it. <laughs> and I'll have to kind of have a trip with him. It's and the responsible it, thing to do. He yeah. was a very caring man, obviously, <laughs> and um, and he had a, an out of body experience on the plane. And after that, he renounced drugs and that kind of uh, quasi-spiritual space or spiritual space mm. was taken by his devotion to the Indian guru, Maya Baba. Yeah. 
I think there's something that sums up the Who's approach to psychedelia at that mm-hmm. time is at Monterey, when obviously they, they smashed up their guitars on stage. Yeah. Uh, Ravi Shankar, apparently, who was at Monterey, was just absolutely <laughs> disgusted by this. But it was, it was totally going against the grain of, of sort of peace and love and the prevailing vibes, if you like, at Monterey. Mm-hmm. And a lot was made about the outfit ta- uh, Daltrey was wearing on stage. Is that which the tassels? Embroid- embroidered, yeah. very embroidered sort of flowery shawl, just seen <laughs> as being very psychedelic. And as he always turned around, it wasn't psychedelic at all, it was a table cloth that I bought in Shepherd's Bush Market. <laughs> and I think that, that encapsulates the who it does. and psychedelia. They, they, they weren't really committed to it. <laughs> it was tablecloths from Shepherd's Bush, really. Brilliant. So we're moving backwards in time for our second moment, okay. which, is, uh, which is Pete's rock opera, Quadrophenia, from 1972. Now, Pete had already written a concept album with Tommy, but Quadrophenia was more of a narrative, isn't it? It's, it's Pete revelling in the Who's mod past. What does that tell us about Pete at this point, Mark? Well, he says he's looking back, which I think was un- unusual at that time, looking back in 1972, you know, when everybody else was supposedly looking forward. He's sort of getting weirdly nostalgic mm. for that time. And again, it's about the mods. I mean, Pat was saying about the mods had all gone by that, but a lot of them had by that, mm. by that point. You have these stories of sort of old mods wandering down to the UFO club in 1967 <laughs> and in their sort of their old their mod suits. gear and being yeah. appalled to see Townsend in a caftan or something and... <laughs> Wondering what was going on, and I, but I think those those mods and those people are the people that's always in Townsend's mind when he's writing songs, and so you know that 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 suggests mm. to me that's where he was at. So Pat, tell us a bit about quadrophenia. The uh, the quadrophenic bit is meant to represent the four personalities. Yeah, I mean, of the band, when you right? think about it, it, it it is very clever, and it's a very sort of Townsendian idea. He'd struggled after Tommy to do another concept album. He wanted to mm. better Tommy. So um, he started on this project called Lifehouse, which was a bit of a disaster because mm. nobody understood what he was going on about. And, and what was he going on about? Well, nobody knows because yeah. they don't understand. <laughs> We're still trying to work that out. We're still working, trying to work it out today. But, I mean, it, but it's very clever. It, it, again, it feeds into this idea of um, uh, uh, looking for... I mean, they, they, they did sort of computer classes at Ealing art school mm. long yes. before anyone had really invented a personal yeah, they, computer. Yeah, he genuinely thought computers were coming to yes, you he know, did. take over so, the world. So in, his, in, in Lifehouse, um, we're all connected by this thing called the grid. Mm. Sort of, we're, we're all wired up together, which is, of course you might say see that it, you know, something prescient um, about the internet because we, we are now. But it was also a spiritual thing because the answer to the world's problem was a single note that we all shared. So, so at some point, he could explain this better than me, because <laughs> we'd sure all become couldn't. a single tone. And, and that would... And that would and, and that'd be, and Daltrey and the others just thought this was just like a load of old cobblers. <laughs> so um, that was made into Who's Next. But Pete really did. He wanted to do this, this uh, uh, another concept album. And they were adrift at this point. And he came up with the idea of looking back to how they started. That they were these mm. four very distinct and charismatic characters, Moon, Entwistle, Daltrey, Townsend. And then eight years later, they'd changed. They'd become men, they've got young families or mm. whatever. But they were kind of still the same people that they were in the mod days. So he set mm. a story back in the mod days and, and he came up with a, an archetype mod called uh, Jimmy. Yeah. And Jimmy goes on a, a kind of, you know, pills, fighting, sex, relationship breakdown, nervous breakdown, um, spiritual redemption. 
Mm. And this was a concept that was far stronger than the previous one. But the problem was, you know, four people, um, you know, a schizophrenic times two, so quadrophenia. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So he thinks, well, let, let's, do, well, isn't it? let's do that in quadraphonic sound. <laughs> so he then builds a studio. It was all got very complicated. <laughs> and what did the rest of the band make of that? They just sort of let him indulge them, didn't they? There's a great quote from Daltrey around that time where he's talking about Lifehouse and Pete's concepts. He was ungrounded. He needed an earth wire, which I thought, obviously, Daltrey sees himself as the earth wire, and he did do a couple of days as an electrician's mate, so I could see where he he was coming from. But I do think that sort of sums it up quite well. I think they just indulged him. They never knew really what Tommy was about. They certainly didn't know what Lifehouse was about. <laughs> and I think perhaps by the time you got to Quadrophenia, that's something quite concrete that they could have got their heads around. Yeah. They, you know, that, that, that's an easier sell, I think, to Well, it's the their audience, isn't yes, it? Yes, totally, as, yeah, totally. The band. D- yeah. Townsend got very much into this uh, idea, which he's, which he's still um, beholden to now, which is mm. the who are a reflection of their audience. Yeah. So those original Shepherds Bush geezers who followed them around, they've, they've all gone on the same journey. So it's a it's about the who can't be disconnected from the yeah. people who come to see them. They're, they're all one and the same thing. So writing something about mods and uh, you know people going on a journey struck a chord. I think mm. Which in itself is quite with, radical. With thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the music is phenomenal. It's, it's quite difficult because it's not pop music. But once you get your head around that... It's very com- long, isn't it? It's, it's very long. It's two, yeah. two, you know, four sides. Um, One each. No. But it has... Um, <laughs> there's um, Jessica um, Duchin, who's a uh, classical music critic, um, mm. came out um, about 10 years ago very much in favour of the idea that it really is a proper rock opera. It has the complexity in terms of, of the structure. opera. Right. It has a story... And it has uh, leitmotifs of the characters, which are blended in yes, and make they... and and reappear. Yeah. Again, nobody had done anything quite that ambitious in mainstream rock. No, not a or, or as well, away. because mm. of, which is why we're still talking about it now. Absolutely. So, Mark, um, Pete said that the key to understanding Jimmy, the main character, was to look at post-war Britain, which is something of a recurring theme yes. for Pete, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is something that's driven his, all his work, I mm. think, right from the beginning. Is So much of it reflects his lifestyle and his childhood and his experiences growing up. And it is, it is all about post-war Britain. And I think it's that thing, and he's talked a lot about this. His parents, as, as Pat was saying, his parents were musicians. His mum's that gave up music to have to become a mother at the time. But his father, mm. Cliff, was in the Squadronaires, who were a wartime yeah. dance band. And, and in that period... Pete grew up with these stories about the war. The war, the shadow of the Second World War hung over him, all of the band, as it did to that generation of musicians. And I think all of that stuff is in there. He grew up hearing stories his parents told him about going to a, a ballroom in Bristol that had been bombed mm. and having to help pull bodies out of the rubble and so on. And in contrast to all that, while he was a child, his parents would get these affluent gigs at American Air Force bases, as yeah. as the early Who did before they became the Who. And he said he'd go from sort of ration books and living the way that they were to going to the American Air Force base where there was all the food and drink and right, anything yeah. that you could possibly want and generals driving around in Cadillacs. You know, it's like a tiny piece of America in the middle of sort of bomb-scarred Britain. And I think all of that is there in his songwriting and in those ideas, yeah, growing kind of up, being a kid, him. that contradiction. Mm. And, of course, again, the other thing is the abolition of national service because his generation, 
Pete said, I was a war baby, but I never knew war because he was born just after it ended. Mm -hmm. His generation didn't have to join the army or, or any of the other services and do this sort of thing. And so then they're then confronted, as was Jimmy and all these young men that he was writing about, with this new world in the 50s, early, mm -hmm. late 50s, early 60s, where it's like, you're okay, you don't have to, you know, you, you've got money, you're not going to be killed, you're not going to be sent off to fight in the war, mm -hmm. you're, you're slightly more, you're more affluent than your parents were at that mm -hmm. time. You've got things like Ealing Art School, where you can talk about being a sponge as a lesson and so on, that kind of thing. Is that, I mean, something that Townsend said once in a Mojo interview, he said he's, our, our parents, our, the older generation's attitude was, you two, you, you know, you lot, you, you've never had it so good, you know, Macmillan style, you're never going to have to go to war, all you can do is sit around at home and enjoy the sugar. Because the sugar had come off rushing, and he used this as an, as an excuse. So they were sort of made to feel, well, what's our contribution going to be to the world? Yeah. We're never going to fight in a war. You know, we've got all the sugar we could possibly want. What are, what are we going to do? How are we going to we're compete? We're that's the true stimulant. The that is it, yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. it progressed from sugar. That was a gateway drug. Well, right. You can take it from there. But I think all of that feeds into the characters. Yeah. In, in, that's the world he's writing about, that's these right. sort of disenfranchised young men who were trying to find their place in the world. And, and Jimmy the Mod is a very mm. kind of modern rebel because he's got freedom. He can mm. go from London to Brighton. He's got his wheels, you know, he's got his scooter, he's got money, yeah. he's got a job. But he has a psychological problems, which has which kind of been the story, I think, of, of sort of the post-national service kind of teenagers just struggling with with an internal reality yeah. uh, as much as the uh, external problems so w what about um quadrophenia when they took it on to how did it work out oh it's a complete disaster <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think they well they tried to they had because it's got synthesizer parts and other bits and pieces um they needed um to have sequences early kind of sequences which of course yeah. being townsend you know, he, he'd made them with, you know, Bob Pridden, the, the sound man, and they didn't work. So I think the first time they tried to do it, it was just absolute disaster with bits and pieces coming in at the wrong time. <laughs> so I think Townsend sort of uh, had a bit of a strop. Now, I, don't, I don't think he actually killed Bob Pridden, but, you know, he did. Did he bring him he, out he on stage him. to shout he didn't. He said he didn't, he did, said he didn't, he didn't oh. actually physically harm him, oh. which, is, which is good. But I think, but that was, you know, that was Townsend's frustration that he'd, that he'd had this yeah. such an ambitious concept and then, you know, recording it was troublesome and then taking it out on the road didn't go very well. And it's really strange because within a couple of years, very few Quadrophenia tracks were appearing in the Who's live set list. You know, I think, and they and, had such bad associations. Well, they, they went, they went to America to tour um, this thing about a British, you know, mod in Shepherd's Bush going to Brighton and mm -hmm. taking a rowing boat out to a rock that doesn't really exist because there aren't any rocks off the sea in Brighton. And they, of course, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. <laughs> it was no. life house all over again. They were like, so you know, the photo. Yes. The yeah, they're going to think what on earth At is least that? They could see the mods. Well, yeah. They could understand them. Why is that? Man, got a, a, a silly Parker on. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was very difficult. I mean, it, only in retrospect do we see this as the the, mm. the, the masterpiece uh, that it is. Mm. I mean, it, it didn't, you know, didn't sell particularly, particularly well. It sort of it grew up. It's grown up well, though, hasn't it? It's mm. aged well. I mean, they did it a few years ago. I remember seeing them. Called, by that time, the technology's mm. caught up with well, Pete's that's brain. Right. Again, it was quite pressing, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? Because it wasn't yeah. until the nineties that they could yes, really. Yes, they could do these things. And I think it was about I can't remember about five or six years ago or something like that. They did it then, and it really yeah. made sense with back projections of bomb sites and Second World War and everything that's happened. 
you kind of go, this is an amazing piece of work and it fits perfectly now. But you sort of had to wait 30, 40 years for, <laughs> well, the, for the, film, the pieces to fit. Yeah. The, I mean, the film did it, you know. Yes, the film yeah. did it. I mean, the film has got other who, who music in it. Mm. But, I mean, it kind of made the story make sense. It, it, yeah. ironed, it ironed it out into something. It, yeah. it was this sort of reductive version it does. of it, really. Yeah. It is and then people design. bought the album yeah. and what on earth is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is, yeah. Yeah. So if you want to hear um, any of the music we've talked about on this podcast from um, The Who Sellout or Quadrophenia, head over to the Mojo Innovators podcast playlist at Apple Music. Uh, so this week on the Mojo Innovators, we're talking about Pete Townsend. So in 1974, The Who play uh, their first of would be two gigs at Charlton Athletics Football Ground in South East London. And uh, how was Pete pioneering stadium rock here, do you think, Pat? Well, he, he was creating a new kind of stadium rock because of the, um, the quadraphonic uh, nature <laughs> of quadraphenia. Uh, oh, they yes. thought they'd do that live. So they actually had a quadraphonic setup. So they went, they went to the Valley, which is the Charlton football's, yeah. um, Football Club's ground. And apparently the acoustics are very good. And if you've ever been there, they are. I've seen Elton John there. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you will know. <laughs> and um, will. so they had, they had quad sound, yeah. so they were doing that. But they also had, a, they spent loads of money on a light show. Um, so the whole mm. thing was, it was this kind of um, audiovisual um, experience with a kind of, you know, moving towards almost like a spiritual um uh, experience as well. Like I'm not saying like in a churchy way, mm. but in in such that you're in this very enclosed ground with 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 a very uh, you know very intense sound. Yeah, and that you and and the, the music would would bring everybody together. So um, you wanted it to be a kind of overwhelming, uplifting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th- and they did some uh, songs from Quadrophenia. Actually, they did sort of Drowned and Bellboy mm. and stuff like that. But there's footage of them playing that first Charlton gig and they do My Generation and it's just astonishing. You, you, you know, you get a sense of just how. I mean, there's Pete in a giant pair of white flared trousers sort of <laughs> running around like a you know, lunatic and adultery in his kind of, you know, what's it? Like oh no, he's wearing a chamois leather. Like, like window cleaner. Yeah. Like a giant chamois yeah, looks like he's just been polishing his car, and he's just sort of like <laughs> again the duality on. of the who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and they and they give this uh, incredible performance, and I think this was moving towards the who uh, later on as mm. a as a kind of uh, a, a real stadium band where the whole thing was a kind of holistic thing with, mm. with kind of lights, cameras, action, everything. Yeah, a sort of communing experience with the audience. Very but, much so, which mm. feeding back to his Mayor Baba uh, philosophy. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know whether we touched upon that. Yet. Well, no, this was, well, yeah, this was, he, in the mid-60s, he was introduced to the teachings of Mayor Baba, who was a, an Indian master who'd taken mm. a vow of uh, silence, never spoke at all, communicated with a, a sort of an alphabet board <laughs> and by writing <laughs> things great, down, which is, yeah. which is incredible. And he was... Townsend was turned on to him by a guy called Mike McKinney, who designed the cover of Tommy. And again, this nice. this is all at, towards the end of the 60s. It comes back to that thing of the drugs aren't working, alcohol's not working. I'm looking for the secret to life. Where can I find it? And obviously the music was still working for him, but he, he'd had this very conflicted experience with drugs. So he talked about earlier when yeah. coming back on the plane from Monterey. And he was looking for something else. And he got involved with Mayor Barber's teachings, sometimes before the Beatles started sort of mm. flirting with the Maharishi and, and so on. And it was very much informed his thinking and this idea of stepping away from the indulgences and the excesses of rock and roll 
and following a spiritual path. And it was a very easy philosophy, I think. It's basically don't don't worry, be happy. Yeah. And you know, don't don't smoke dope, don't drop acid, don't drink don't drink alcohol. It's quite, and, it's quite progressive too, it's isn't it? Progressive it's quite progressive and sort of, yes. Intersectional. There's it is. No it is. And, and you know, Mayor Barber lived very modestly, so he wasn't mm-hmm. in a sort of an HQ in California driving around <laughs> in Rolls <laughs> yeah. Royces. And he, not, not a chatty guy at all, as we say. He didn't really talk at all. Mm. For 44 <laughs> years. You know, no, this yeah. was a really mm. big thing for Townsend. And again, it's, mm. this ties in with that idea of what we talked about with Lifehouse, of a pure note. I mean, it's something yeah. like Pure and Easy, which, is, which, which was written for Lifehouse, is about that. And this is all related to Barber. Mm. Barbara O'Reilly is the most obvious thing. We're sort of fusing together Terry Riley, whose music, uh, obviously Rainbow and Curved Air, that, that Townsend was obsessed by at this time, and also Mayor Barber. So he jammed together two of his favourite influences. Madonna's favourite who song? Yes. In our new issue. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She yeah. likes humble pie a lot too. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't. But this is, you know, this is this is where he's coming from with this, and this all filters down into the idea of an audience communing with the audience, mm. the band and the audience being as one. It's yeah. all related very much to Mayor Barber, and he carried mm. on following his teachings, and I think he's still mm. partly influenced by him now. Yeah, he, he took it seriously. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a flash in the pan for him, regardless of what we may think, of stepping back the whole idea of the Indian guru yeah. and so on became a fashionable thing, but Townsend but, was committed. It's more of a sort of psychological approach. Yes, it takes, is. It, it was. It was a way of him still... trying to make sense at the end of the 60s. Yeah. Of course, he didn't stop him putting away a bottle of brandy a day and so on. So <laughs> he's very honest <laughs> about his very flaws. Very honest about his flaws and that you know but Barber didn't want him to be drinking a bottle of brandy a day so <laughs> did that, he say that no well only no, his alphabet, no. only his alphabet board <laughs> yeah. yeah well the, well the thing was his teachings don't it's, it's about awakening mm. it's not telling you that sure. you can do this and you can't do that but I mean it, there's a real there is a spiritual core to it in that mm. that you go through life and you try and and, and and be good and charitable mm. and kind of love in a selfless way with a view to you when you die you become a god and there's all yeah. that really because he did believe stuff. he was a god incarnate didn't he Mahabalba I mean yes, yes, not he Pete did. Townsend yeah, yeah. Um, Townsend as well maybe. well Perhaps, sometimes yeah. Yeah. that would explain a lot yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah but I, yes I still think he, he kind of you know he certainly made lots of music inspired mm. you know solo albums and so on and that music mm. a lot of that music as well I mean Pete, Pete Townsend used a description mini symphonies we're talking about stadium yeah. rock yeah. thing won't get fooled again Behind Blue Eyes, Barbara O'Reilly, he wrote those songs believing that they would sound fantastic in a big stadium mm. in front of loads of people, you know, in a way that perhaps a three and a half minute song like, you know, I can't explain isn't necessarily. So they go through mm. stages, Barbara O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah. Obvious choices. Their mini, mini symphonies was a description mm-hmm. that Townsend used of them. You, that's the way he described those pieces. And the idea was that they were written for stadiums. Yeah. I think it's interesting in that other musicians from that time, you would never hear Jimmy Page admit that about Stairway to Heaven. But that may well be that how it turned out. But I think Townsend is quite willing to analyse what he does yes, and say sure. that there's a, a reason for it. Mm. And stadium we, Rock is definitely that period. Yeah. Can we talk about the levitating, please? The lev- Yes, he thought that the audience could levitate <laughs> as one, well, didn't I think that's in, when they played Charlton again. They, they okay. played Charlton in, so in 1976. Yeah. And they had a proper laser show by yes. then. Because mm. they, kind of, they were developing lasers technology down at Ramport Studios in, in Battersea. Mm. And uh, 
when uh, Pink Floyd were flying their pig above Battersea Power Station, they tried to use the lasers to shoot it down. Mm. In a kind of, you know, again, very <laughs> they had a laser roadie, John Wiggy Wolf. He was a laser guy. He was a laser guy. Yeah. And so Great this again very prescient using laser technology to, as a Absolutely. as a weapon. Yeah. Sci-fi <laughs> weaponry. I think the the the, the lasers kind of moved elevated in a way to to make people mm. think, think that, that they they would they they come yeah. off, off the ground again conceptual art yeah and people still mm. people to this day um, are convinced that they did that they were, they floated <laughs> and who are we to say they didn't absolutely no. yeah absolutely so this I mean th- that this whole idea of Pete kind of being empathetic with his audience and writing songs that you know thinking about their experience and. And again, you know, some of the songs are, as you say, about looking back and the passage of time and how you can kind of feel lost as you get older. I mean, that's quite unique, isn't it? You don't get mm. that kind of audience empathy from Mick Jagger, say. No, or, it's that vulnerability yeah. that we talked about, the duality between being hooligans, horrible hooligans, mm. and, you know, smashing up their musical instruments and just being horribly aggressive with each other. And this sort <laughs> of incredibly vulnerable side. Yeah. And we tend to think of it as Towns... You split between the two, Townsend's the sort of the vulnerable side, Daughtry's a hooligan. It's not as clear-cut as that at all. No, but but again, I think himself, it's, uh, it, it ties in mm. with that and his writing. I mean, obviously... After Quadrophenia, he went even further down that road with with the Who by Numbers, which is all about I'm yeah. going bald, I'm in my <laughs> late thirties. What happens? You know, he talked about going to the top Imagine of the pops. Yeah, and he talks about going to the top of the pops with the Who and realizing the girls outside aren't waiting for him anymore for the <laughs> Who. They're waiting for Slade or yeah. Sweet or something. So there's that. But again, I think that's unique for the Who to be yeah. addressing things like that that early on. You know, at that particular point, sure, is a very unusual thing. But you know, Townsend did a very wonderful thing from the off, and that is to speak via adultery. You know, he kind of wrote songs, yes, almost from Roger's point of view, which meant, you know, then and to this day, that the Who speaks to um, a certain kind of rock fan that you know that maybe the Stones don't or didn't, and the Beatles didn't, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's definitely a kind of a, a machismo there and a sort mm. of like, a, you know, a bit of a kind of tough street hard man element. And that kind of uh, mix between Townsend's intellectuality and, and yeah. Roger's sort of natural toughness is, that's quite unique. It is, because there's that duality within the band, but also within Pete, isn't there? You yeah. know, he's sort of the intellectual, which is still two fights a night kind of early on. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't want to take a punch off Pete, would you? You wouldn't. Though? He's a big lad. He is. He's, he's a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> Long arms, good reach. There we are. Um, well, on that excellent note, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But uh, my huge thanks to Mark Blake, whose book Pretend You're in the War, The Who and the 60s is out now. And to Mr Pat Gilbert, author of Passion is a Fashion, The Real Story of the Clash. To hear all the music discussed on this podcast, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe. Next time, I'll be talking about craft work with the men behind the Mojo machine, Ian Harrison and John Mulvey. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Jenny Bully. Thanks for listening. <laughs>